and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Recently, the High Court ruled that wild camping was illegal in Dartmoor. It was the last privately owned land in England and Wales where it was done. You have the right to roam in only 8% of England, and that doesn't include the vast majority of rivers and a lot of woods. Caroline Lucas is the Green MP for Brighton and Hove and has been campaigning for the right to roam to be extended. Welcome to The Bunker, Caroline. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. It's surprisingly easy to end up trespassing when you're in England, isn't it? You need a really good map. You need a really good map and very good eyesight to see said map because quite a lot of this stuff is quite small. So on the one hand, yes, sometimes you don't know you're trespassing. On the other hand, it's only too clear because there are great big notice boards up, you know, with barbed wire saying trespassers will be prosecuted and so forth. So it can feel either quite intimidating or just a kind of slightly uncomfortable feeling about not sure if you're meant to be where you are. And, you know, given, as you say, we have so little legal access to the English countryside, I think that's just, that's just really wrong. You often find yourself hemmed in by narrow pathways, which have been created out of barbed wire. It's, it's very, it's quite intimidating, isn't it? And what does a landowner have the right to do if they see you on their land when you shouldn't be there? I mean, you're right that it is intimidating. And just on the on the subject of, of the footpaths, you know, people quite often say, you know, why do you need uh, a wider right to roam when we've got thousands of, of miles of, of, of footpath? And, and of course, I'm really delighted we do have miles of, of footpath. But to put it into some context, that only covers about 0.3%, I think, of the landmass of of England and Wales. So it's it's a small amount. And what people want to be able to do in a way is to be able to step off the footpath and to feel properly immersed in nature, to feel incredibly familiar and intimate with it and to feel the wildness of it. And if you're absolutely constrained, as you suggest, between two, two uh, lines of barbed wire, that isn't very conducive. In terms of what landowners can do, I mean, in spite of the signs often saying trespassers will be prosecuted. In actual fact, trespass isn't a criminal offence. So so a prosecution as such is unlikely to happen unless it was some kind of aggravated trespass where you were, for example, deliberately committing some kind of criminal damage, which obviously the vast, vast majority of people who, who want to uh, ramble in the countryside are, are not doing. I think it's been made slightly more complicated by the new so-called police Policing Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, this this very authoritarian new piece of legislation, which went through Parliament just before Christmas. And and that now means it's a criminal offence to reside on a landowner's property. I'm sure there will be lots of battles as to what the word reside means, but uh, I'm fairly sure that if if, if you're simply exercising a right to to walk and roam, then then that that wouldn't apply. So it's not a criminal offence, but can you be fined? Again, it's it's you you could be, and that would probably require the landowner to go to um, a, a civil court, and whether or not they would actually take up that challenge, I I don't know because it's it's a hassle and and quite a long process for them too. But I think the point is whether or not you actually do get fined. Nonetheless, you know that the whole atmosphere is one of intimidation. It's one where you are. It's it's designed to make you feel as if you're not welcome there. And and I think that can have a real chilling effect uh, on what people do. And there is open access land, which is coloured light brown on OS maps. And that happened about 20 years ago, didn't it? It did. There was a big push just over 20 years ago to establish in England and Wales 
a right to roam as had existed in in, in Scotland for, for for a while, and that was a, an incredibly important campaign, and and it did put down some some important precedents, some important roots. But I think the concern now is, though, if you look at what that actually means in terms of landmass, again, we're talking, as you said, around eight percent of of English land, three percent of of rivers, and that's why I think it's beyond time that we properly extend the right to roam and that we make sure that we in particular extend it, for example, to woods, to rivers, to greenbelt land, that we enshrine wild campers' rights. And um, that's what my private member's bill would do. I've got a private member's bill in, in Parliament, which I'm struggling to get parliamentary time for, which is always the challenge. But in principle, what it would do is is, is absolutely extend the amount of land to which we have a legal right to access those, those brown bits on your map. What arguments are landowners using to keep people off their land? I think a lot of people ask themselves when they heard about the wild camping case in Dartmoor, what harm was this doing that the landowner objected to? Well, <laughs> the case in point on Dartmoor, I think, is a is a really important one in the sense that I, I haven't seen anything that really suggested that there was a, a problem for the landowner in particular about wild camping there. I mean, what he wanted to use his land for was shooting pheasants and stalking deer, which doesn't sound like it's it's you know <laughs> it feels as if the the right for people to to, to walk and, and not leave any trace and, and to ramble seems to be equally as valid as as, as doing any of those things. I think more seriously what you sometimes come up against and and sometimes I have to say as well with legitimacy is that, you know, if you've just got a crop that's been planted or if you've got animals that that could be threatened or or disturbed, uh, young animals and so forth, then of course there has to be some guidance, some some restrictions. And I don't think anybody is is suggesting that the right to roam would be an absolute, you know, we're not talking about turning up in someone's garden any more than we're talking about walking right across a, a, a field of, of, of grain or whatever. But those kinds of arguments are, are used a lot. Other arguments are about litter and, and, and the very small minority, but nonetheless, there are some people who will who will leave mess behind them. But I don't think you can try to stop the whole country from being able to exercise a wider right to roam just because a tiny minority are irresponsible. I think what we need to be doing is spending an awful lot more time around education. So we have a relatively recently updated countryside code, but the government's done almost nothing to promote it. So why aren't we learning about that in schools? Why aren't we taking inspiration from either Scotland or indeed from other Nordic countries where a presumption in favour of right to roam is is the starting point. And in those countries, you don't find that there's been a massive problem with 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 litter and with with you know people making a mess of the areas they've had access to. To the contrary, you know it's not the wild swimmers who are polluting the rivers, and it's not the ramblers who are who are desecrating the the, the countryside. You know, so if those are our concerns, then trying to address those, you know, by putting the the focus on the government rather than on people exercising a, a right to roam, I think would be more appropriate. How does it work in Scotland? Because it seems to be a much less contentious issue there with a lot more right to roam land. Yes, in, in, indeed. And, and in a sense, what happened when they enshrined the right to roam legislation in Scotland was that they were, in a sense, putting into statute something that was the common practice in any case. So already historically in Scotland, there was an assumption that people had that right of access. Uh, and so by the time they came to enshrine it in law, it was a it was a less controversial issue. Nonetheless, I have to say that there, there was 
you know, a lot of work that went into making that Scottish law uh, as widely supported as, as, it, as it finally was. And, you know, an awful lot of work was done with landowners because, you know, they have legitimate concerns that, that need to be addressed and, 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 you know, need to be understood. So there was a long process that went into that in, in Scotland. And what I would love to see is the start of some of those conversations in England and Wales as well. Other people will point out, of course, that Scotland is, is far less densely populated than, than England and Wales, and, and, and therefore they would argue, perhaps, that the, the right of access was, was, was easier to introduce. I guess I would turn that argument on its head and say it's precisely because England and Wales is, 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 is so densely populated that, that people are, are really in need of green space. I mean, we saw through the COVID pandemic just how important green space is for people's physical health, for their mental health. So when you look at it, the, the figures can be pretty shocking. So for example, today, one in eight families in the UK don't have access to a garden. And when you look at, if you map where some of those households are, then typically they're more likely to be in poorer areas. So in terms of that access to, to land, there's a, a real equalities issue to it, as well as a, an issue of people's health and well-being. So how is your private member's bill going to work? What would it change legally? Legally, what it would do would be to build on the existing right to roam of 20 years ago, and it would extend it to woods, to rivers, to green belt, and it would enshrine the right to, to wild camp. In practical terms, what that does, it's not going straight away to a mass right to roam, and there, there are lots of arguments for doing that, and some people think we should just do that straight away. What this would do would probably increase that 8% figure that we currently have access to in England up to about 33, 34%, something like that. There are arguments as, as to how best to do it. Do you do it incrementally? Do you do it in a, in a fell swoop? And I've had lots of discussions with the Right to Rome campaign, people like Guy Shrubsole, Nick Hayes. And on balance, we decided to go for the more incremental approach in the hope that we can we can make some progress there. And your constituency is Brighton and Hove, of course, which is right next to the South Downs. It probably takes in a bit of the South Downs. In which areas there are you particularly keen to open up? Because I imagine you've got a special interest there and you it's probably somewhere you go quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> well, I feel very blessed to have the South Downs um, on, on the doorstep. But it is also true that in terms of, of ownership uh, when it comes to, to the South Downs, I think it's only about a quarter of the South Downs is, is owned by just 12 landowners. And compared to some other national parks, we actually don't have very much access legally. It's, it's around 5% to which we have a legal access compared to, for example, something closer to, I think, 60% in the peaks. I've been working with the council to see how we could extend open access. And the council owns around about 12,000 acres of, 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 of the park, of, of the Downs. And very excitingly, they've, they've just produced an, a, a new strategy with, with an assumption towards working towards statutory open access, which would mean that over time, that access would become much more um, opened up to public. The reason that it can't happen overnight is because quite a lot of the land that the council owns is leased out to farmers. And you can't change the terms of the contract mid midway through the lease. You need to wait for the lease to, to expire. But certainly there is an assumption that as those leases do come up for uh, renegotiation, then that right of, of public access will be enshrined in them. 
do you think could move this issue on? Because in the past, we've seen people often think of the, the mass trespass on Kinder Scout in the 1930s. And there are campaigners on this issue who do advocate mass trespass. Do you think that would help draw attention to it? Yes, I do. I was really pleased to join the Kinder Trespass anniversary walk last year, which was commemorating that that mass trespass that you, you just mentioned that, that happened 90 years ago in the Peak District. And indeed, it was that trespass on Kinder Scout 90 years ago, which actually did lead to the creation of England's national parks in the end. There are trespasses going ahead. I think that is a way of, of, of raising awareness. I think that the recent court decision about basically now meaning that you can't wild camp legally on Dartmoor anymore has really ignited the whole the whole movement still further. And people who perhaps haven't thought very much about it are now really concerned because it's a, yet again another taking away of, of rights that, that people have have exercised uh, for, for, for generations without even thinking about it very much. So I, I think that people have become more and more aware of the health and well-being benefits of, of, of green space and access to it. I think things like that court case will, will generate anger and, and more mobilization to make sure that people understand that, that rights are at risk. Uh, and, and I think generally, maybe even the government might start looking at it because it was the government itself that a couple of years ago, commissioned something called the Agnew Report. Interestingly, it was the Treasury that commissioned it. And what they were doing was looking at the, the benefits to public health of, of, of access. So what they were doing was basically saying, how much less would we have to pay on the NHS if people had more access to green space? And the figure they came up with was that greater access could save the NHS around £2 billion, which is not insignificant. So, you know, there are there are arguably good economic reasons which might attract the government's attention as well as all of the health benefits as well. There's a tension, isn't there, in this country in particular between the right to property for big landowners and the right to roam. Do you feel that when you're campaigning on it? Is it a constant presence, really, that that, that tension? Well, we do live in an extraordinarily unequal country when it comes to to land ownership when we see you know i was as i was just mentioning when it comes to the south downs national park those 12 landowners who own a quarter of it there are two dukes three viscounts one baron and two baronets you know and it's it does make you feel i think to some extent alienated from from what i would argue is 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 our birthright in a sense and and i think it really matters because because we know we live in one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. E- even just this week, we've had a new report from the Office of Environmental Protection saying that our government has failed to meet even one of its 23 environmental targets. So we've got a situation where we think of ourselves as a, as a, as a nation of, of, of country lovers. We, 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 we know that our country now is in this terrible situation when it comes to the loss of biodiversity. And and yet people aren't making the link to the fact that if people had more familiarity, intimacy, customary access to nature, then maybe that would build the lobby of people who would make sure that our government does better on things like this. I'm, I'm really struck by some words by the US author Richard Louvre, who wrote a fantastic book called The Last Child in the Wood. And he basically said, we cannot protect what we don't love. And we can't love what we don't know. And we can't know what we don't see and touch and hear and sense. And there is that kind of linkage, I think, that that, that 
that familiarity and intimacy with nature, the, be, the, the ability to be able to, to name the birds and the plants. And that links actually to something else I've been working on, which is trying to get a new GCSE in natural history. But the more literate we are around nature, then I think the more, the more equipped we are really to, to, to fight for its survival. Thanks so much for joining us, Caroline. Lovely. Thank you. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can search Patreon Bunker Podcast and help us keep going and making more of them. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork by James Parrott, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.